Thank you, Dr. Steele, for the invitation to join you today in chapel here at Truett. Um, I don't know if it was your idealism that caused you to think that two passionate people could share one sermon time, but, uh, but we're going to do our very best. <laughs> Much like the, the scripture reading this morning, as Paul looked over his shoulder at young Timothy, that, the kind of joy he expressed is the kind of joy I feel when I come to Truett and, and look over my shoulder, as I know Dr. Wiles does as well, to to see those of you coming behind us, uh, following your own call, uh, following uh, the sense of leadership that you have in your life. Uh, Today, we want to address the issue of living your real life um, and and real ministry. Um, As a couple engaged in real life ministry, we find this topic to be very relevant and uh, and very real. on a recent journey that I took to Ethiopia, as I was working there, I went to the ancient city of Bahadar uh, and took a day to seek a little tranquility and peace. I visited 20 island monasteries. I didn't visit all of them, but I took a tour on a boat to go and visit island monasteries. Each of those monasteries was distinct, uh, isolated, surrounded by water, cut off and disconnected from the swirl of life and culture that surrounded it. Orthodox monks in the monasteries spent their days in prayer and meditation, song and chant, the rhythm of the physical labors of agrarian life, insulated from the world, following their own sense of call nonetheless, but avoiding the noise and the chaos of the human experience in the culture that surrounds them. As I stood in that monastery, um, one of those monasteries, I was just impressed by the stark contrast between my own world as I serve as a minister in an urban church context located in the middle of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, one of the largest entertainment centers in North America, next to the second largest university in the UT system uh, with a rich and diverse cultural ethnic mix, uh, a huge blend of worldview uh, contained within a a small six-block area uh, in a city that's less than 41% Caucasian. And I thought about the difference between that place, that small island monastery, and my own. Um, And it caused me to reflect, who am I? (laughs) And who are we, those of us who are called, uh, called to take the message forward, called to share the gospel with the unreached world? Who are we? We each have our distinct calling. And each day we arise and we look in the mirror. I look in the mirror of self-awareness each day and my face that I see is somewhat a composite of, of uh, the pictures of the apostles. That's how I imagine it to be, where I find myself uh, living real life in a real world, facing the pressures of everyday ministry within the church, around the church, and extending our arms around the world. It's a very complex world that we live in. It's a very complex world that you will serve out your call and leadership in. Um, When I look in that mirror of self-awareness, I I, I become very much aware of my own 
vulnerabilities and my own struggle with flesh as I am contained in flesh, but, but then empowered by the spirit. And I'm like Peter in some ways, extremely passionate. And I find myself in, in another moment being a denier. Uh, like Thomas, I'm often uh, the doubtful zealot. <laughs> and like James and John, sometimes my self-centrism um, gets in the way of my service. And so uh, we live real life in a real world, engaging people and culture and family. Uh, and we, 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 feel, we live that calling out in an everyday life. Um, I'm going to do what I do best today, and that is to... What I do best is open the door for other people to exercise their call. That's my calling, uh, to open the door, the global gates, in a sense, for others to go and to live their calling around the world. But today, um, I'm going to open the door for um, the preacher, my husband, Dennis Walsh, to come and to share with you a word about real life and real ministry in a real world. Thank you. you still have your copy of the New Testament available, I'd like to point you to 2 Timothy, the fourth page, as we have heard other passages read already. But listen to what the Apostle Paul shares at the end of his life from a a prison in Rome. He begins page four, verse one, with these words, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. That's a powerful introduction where Paul says, in view of Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice that it's not the baby Jesus of Talladega Nights. It's not the soft Jesus that so many of us are drawn to. That's not who he references in this text. Did you notice that? It's not that blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that's lightly frolicking his way through life, uttering platitudes with a British accent. This is Jesus the judge. It's a Jesus that causes some of us to be a bit uncomfortable with because we don't always associate him with judgment. And yet that is how he is portrayed in Scripture at times. It is even how he portrays himself as he shares messages with his followers, particularly this week at our church, we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we prepare ourselves for Easter, our daily Bible readings for Holy Week, one of my congregants said to me yesterday, Pastor, the Jesus in Matthew is hard to hear. Paul said, in view of Christ Jesus, the judge... In view of his epiphany, he says in Greek, and his kingdom, I give you this charge. That's your eternal context as a minister. You're standing in the presence of God and his son, Christ Jesus. And then he issues the commands for the called. Verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage, he says. Those are the commands. Those are imperatives from the heart of the Apostle Paul. Five of them, and they just flow very freely from his pen because they flow so freely out of a lifetime given in ministry. And here he is at the end of his life 
looking over his shoulder about to hand off the baton. And I would just say to those of you that are younger, handing off a baton is never easy. You ever notice that's when the trouble comes for relay races? It's usually not in the running of the race. The trouble usually comes when? When they hand off the baton. And those of us who are a little further down the track from some of you, I just want you to know it will be hard for us to hand it off. Do not snatch it out of our hands. <clears throat> that will only cause our grip to tighten. <clears throat> Let us hand it to you and hopefully we'll hand it to you at just the right time and we won't drag you along with us for a while. It's hard to do. But Paul is handing off the baton and he's got words of instructions and they're imperatives, they're not suggestions. And they flow out of a lifetime of ministry. And then notice the devotion of the minister. With great patience, he says. You see, you and I, as ministers of the gospel, those of us who are called to preach this great word of God and this glorious gospel, we need great patience. And I've discovered that patience grows inside of me because of my devotion to the most patient one himself. And then the discipline of the preacher and careful instruction, good preaching, and lasting ministry is rooted in discipline. There's no easy path. I don't know of an easy way to do this. What you have ahead of you is a lifetime of discipline. Because the church needs careful instruction. And then notice the temporal context. You've heard the eternal context. My goodness, you're performing the acts of ministry in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Well, what about your temporal context? Well, look at verse 3. Paul says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. You think Paul was a prophet? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. The temporal context of your ministry will be filled with all kinds of challenges. Paul's was, and so were yours. And then in my Bible, I have a notation underneath verse 5. And that would be, it's the secret to survival. So if you want to know how to make it over the long haul, go back to this one sentence from Paul, and I promise you it'll help you. Practical advice from an old man. Paul says, be sober. He says, but you, verse 5, be sober. I love how the NIV puts that into English. Any of you have the NIV? I don't know, do y'all use the NIV in seminary nowadays? I'm not sure what they use nowadays. But we use the NIV at our church. Paul says, keep your head in all situations. Now, in the front of my preaching Bible, I have a photograph that I took when I was at Notre Dame in Paris. And it's a photo of the architectural frieze as you enter that great cathedral. And you know that as those cathedrals are wont to do, they have glorious artwork that welcomes you. And there are statues of the famous apostles and saints. But if you ever go to Paris and you walk into Notre Dame, you'll notice there's one particular person who's actually holding his own head. And I have that in the front of my Bible. It's St. Denis. 
That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it, honey? St. Dennis. I think we ought to try that some. If you know the legend of St. Dennis, do you know it? He's the patron saint of Paris. And you know that as he was outside Paris, he had his head removed. But as the legend goes, he walked back into Paris holding his head, still preaching. And so you'll recognize him when you enter the Cathedral of Notre Dame because he's the only one holding his own head. I keep that in my Bible because I remind myself that when everybody else is losing their head around me, my job as the minister is to keep mine. And so I would just tell you in your lifetime in ministry, there's great words of advice. Keep your head in all situations. And then he says, endure hardship. If you think this is going to be easy, get out. Find another profession. Perhaps there are professions that are easy. This would not be one. And you're in for a lifetime of disappointment. (laughs) If you engage yourself in ministry and you think that's the easy path. I promise you, Paul the Apostle writes this from a prison in Rome. Endure hardship. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. That's because you're always going to have to share the gospel. It's always appropriate to share the gospel. And it's work. And then I love this last comment. Discharge the duties of your ministry. You know what that really all sounds like to me? It sounds like a job description. Have y'all ever had a job description? Have you ever read your job description? Um... I don't know if y'all are familiar with uh, Scott Adams, but on his Dilbert blog, he sent a note out to his readers and he said, I would like for you to write for me your job and describe it in one sentence, preferably in a humorously derogatory way. So here's what he received. He has the top 50. Let me give you a few of them. Read things that don't matter, then write papers saying they do matter for points that don't matter in order to get a job doing something totally unrelated. Student, take numbers on pieces of paper, rearrange them, and put them on different pieces of paper. Tax accountant, learn laws created ages ago so that I can tell engineers why I'm smarter than they are while complaining how it's a travesty they get paid more. A physics major, show you innovative ways to burn your money in the spirit of patriotism. A fireworks stand manager. Spend all day staring out a window. Airplane pilot. Try not to kill the baby. A housewife. He says, here's his top ten. I won't give you all of them. This was Scott Adams' favorite. Help people hate each other. A divorce lawyer. Stand on a field and get yelled at for hours. A baseball umpire. Um, And then for some of you in this room, talk in other people's sleep. A college professor. (laughs) This was my favorite. Show people how beautiful the earth would be without them. A landscape photographer. (laughs) (laughs) And then I came across perhaps the craziest job description of all time. At least that's what it is according to the internet. It's the Dalkey Archive Press. It's a small book publisher in Illinois. And it actually put this 
um, request in the paper and advertised online. It says, the press is looking for promising candidates with an appropriate background who have already demonstrated a strong interest in literary publishing, are very, very well read in literature in general, and Dalkey archive books in particular, are highly motivated and ambitious, are determined to have a career in publishing, and will sacrifice to make that career happen, are willing to start off at low-level salary and work their way upwards, possess multidimensional skills that would be applied to work at the press, look forward to undergoing a rigorous and challenging probationary period either as an intern or an employee, want to work at Dalkey Archive Press doing whatever is required of them to make the press succeed, do not have any other commitments, personal or professional, that will interfere with their work at the press, family obligations, writing, involvement in other organizations, degrees to be finished, holidays to be taken, weddings to attend in Rio, etc., know how to act and behave in a professional office environment with high standards of performance and who have a commitment to excellence that can be described or demonstrated on a day-to-day basis, do not apply if all of the above does not describe you. So if you have no personal life and no other desires in life and you're willing to work for nothing, you are qualified. Well, when I look at this text, what I have written out on the side of it in my copy of the New Testament is job description for real ministry. That's what I hear from Paul in this text. And I just want to offer you two things. There's no way for me to fully explain this text and offer all the exegetical research that I've done. It's too dense for that. I would just encourage you to do it. Hopefully that's what you're learning to do anyway. And I want to encourage you to do it. I know that there are some who would question whether or not Paul even wrote this letter. But none other than the authority of uh, your dean himself, Todd Still, in his book on Paul suggests to me that Paul just may have authored this and even offers it up as his belief that he did. Pastoral epistles are a little bit controversial, but nevertheless, it's my conviction that Paul wrote this as his last letter. And I just want to offer you two words, if I can do that quickly this morning. Perspective and principles. Because I believe that's what you and I need for the long haul in ministry. And that's what I believe Paul offers in this text. Perspective. We need perspective. Your ministry is going to have a certain context. So just know that. And you need to keep that perspective. It's going to be your responsibility to understand it. Obviously, you're always going to have an eternal context. And you need to keep that perspective in mind. So when Paul charges Timothy and commands him and encourages him and exhorts him, he reminds him of the eternal context, and that is that you're standing in the presence of God. You know, whenever you, you craft a job description, often at the beginning of it, you're given your direct report, your supervisor, if you will. Well, who's your supervisor as a minister? Well, none other than God and his son, Jesus. So, and he is, Jesus is the one who will judge our actions. And so I always keep that in mind in my own ministry. So we all have an eternal context as ministers, but I would also tell you, you're going to have a temporal context and more than likely, your context is going to be filled with challenges. And those challenges are rooted in multiple things. For example, it may be the era in which you live and minister. Cindy and I were talking this morning as we were watching the news. Cindy was in Belgium last Thursday in Brussels in that very airport. It's on fire today. This is a challenging era. I see some seasoned veterans in the room. Um, It, to me, seems to be one of the most challenging ever. I'm not sure how y'all feel about it, but that's how it appears to me. 
So as you younger ministers are embarking on a lifetime of ministry, this is a challenging era, and it's because of the time in which you live, you've got to understand the complexity of this culture or the cultural setting where you will serve and determine how to respond. It may be that the challenges you face will have to do with the local church that you're a part of. Local churches can often be troubled. Some of them are new. Some of them are old. The church I pastor was established in 1871. That's somewhat old by Texas standards, but I always love my annual journey to Rome, and I'm reminded of just how new and fresh my upstart church is as I see these ancient churches. There are also issues that will arise in your ministry, and you're going to have to be able to keep a proper perspective. You're going to face all types of challenges as a minister. And what Paul says is be sober. The NIV says keep your head. What I would tell you is you just can't die on every hill. You have more than one life in ministry, but you don't have nine. You're not a cat. So you decide upon which hill you will die. Well, those are hard decisions for ministers. But I would tell you that there are some hills upon which all of us must die if we're going to lead the church. But it's not every single one of them. And hopefully the Lord will give you good sense to know the difference between a minor skirmish and a nuclear war. Those are two completely different things and you don't treat them the same. They require different skills. And so I would encourage you as a future minister, some of you already engaged in ministry, that you have to maintain your perspective. And Paul is asking Timothy to do that. To understand what's happening around you. Endure hardship if you have to. When, it, when it's necessary, share the gospel. When you believe that evangelism is what needs to happen. When it's sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, he says. But then I would tell you secondly, and really where I would, if I had time, I would camp out if I could. And that has to do with the principles that are found in this text. The principles are encased in the imperatives. There are nine of them in just this short text. Nine imperatives. You go back and just count them. And as you just walk through them, Paul says, be prepared. It's an imperative. He says, correct, rebuke, encourage. Those are imperatives. Evangelize, work, do your job. Fulfill the work of the ministry. Those are all imperatives. But the one I want to speak to just real quickly is the, the one that is the opening imperative. The opening word from Paul. Paul says, preach the word. I would tell you that is something for you to take personally as a minister. Every minister will get the chance to preach. And so whenever you have the opportunity to preach and you're wondering what to preach, preach the word. That's what Paul says. I would say to you that feel called to preach for the rest of your life, then preach the word. Preaching the word of God keeps you anchored in truth because the word of God is the revelation of God. And you notice that when that phrase is translated into English, it's translated variously. Sometimes word is capitalized, sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are those who've tried to determine exactly what is Paul saying. Well, look back at the immediate statement just prior to what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, I know that you understand even from infancy that you've learned truths from the Holy Scriptures. They're able to make you wise, he says, for salvation. And then he says, all Scripture is, is God-breathed. It's useful. And then he challenges Timothy to use it. The Word of God is the revelation of God. God has made himself known through his Word. I've given a lifetime to preaching 
the Holy Scriptures to the people of God. It's the word of truth. It's what our people need. What did the Apostle Paul do? As I study the New Testament, the Apostle Paul preached the Bible. When you read what Paul did in Corinth, the Bible says in Acts chapter uh, 18, verse 11, that Paul spent time in Corinth and he taught them the word of God. The reason for that is that Paul knew they needed the truths from the word of God. As a matter of fact, in Thessalonica, the Bible says in Acts 17, verse 2, it was his custom to reason with these people from the scriptures. He pointed them to this overarching message of the gospel, but the gospel is rooted in and grows out of the revelation of God, recorded for us in his holy word. So what I would say to you as a preacher, preach the Bible. Preach the word of God. It's the word of truth. It's what people need to hear. I've heard it said that the church is not a book club. I agree with that. But I also would say that the church is not a gathering of enlightened redactors who sit in judgment over the revelation of God. God has spoken. I can remember when I was a younger preacher, this bumper sticker used to be circulated. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. What I would tell you is God said it, and that settles it whether you and I believe it or not. Here's my admonition to you. I look at you. Oh my goodness, you look so young. You've got a whole lifetime ahead of you. And I'm excited for you. What a great time to be alive. What a great time to be in ministry. Cindy and I arrived at Southwestern Seminary with a world on our hearts in 1981. How many of you were not even born in 1981? Don't, don't raise your hand and brag. Come on. That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> wow. Think about that. Cindy and I have been involved in this longer than you've been alive. 1981, MS-DOS was introduced by Microsoft for the first time. IBM sold their very first personal computer. Now, Al Gore had not yet invented the Internet, but we were still able to use those things. The first space shuttle was launched in 1981. The Dow closed at 875 in 1981. I want to tell you, a lot has changed in these 35 years. Cindy and I arrived at our first church in 1983. So we've been involved in pastoral ministry for the last, how many ever years that is, until today. We've learned a lot. And I would tell you that... Uh, a lot has changed. And we face temptations. And I know that you will as well. Here's what I would tell you. The temptation that you will face is an ancient one. It's one that people have faced all over the world throughout time. Cindy and I have had the, the, the good gift of God to be able to travel across our world to try to share the message of Jesus to the far reaches of this planet in urban settings as well as in remote villages in some of the darkest places on our planet. And what we've discovered is that there's a universal impulse in the side of, inside of every human being. There's an altar in every soul. And human beings just have a propensity to want to worship something. We have found altars all over the world of all sizes and all shapes. And historically, the temptation of humanity is to craft a God according to our own image. It's been done over and over and over again. And if you think you're above that temptation, then you have no idea what lies ahead. Because you will be faced with the temptation 
to somehow form Jesus and craft him into an image you can understand and relate to and believe in. Now, I would tell you that at this particular seminary, you don't face one of the temptations that's out there, I don't believe. If I were speaking at another seminary where the students came from a different type of background and were of a different ilk, what I would tell you is there are some seminaries today, if I were preaching there, there are seminarians who will be faced with the temptation to somehow craft Jesus at some point ultimately in their ministry life into a narrow-minded, fearful prophet, afraid of anything new, afraid of anything that might threaten their particular system, longing for a past that probably never existed in the first place. I don't think that's the temptation most of you will face because I don't believe you're of that ilk. Most of you don't come from that particular part of the spectrum of the Christian family. I think you'll face a different one, but it's a temptation nonetheless. And I would advise you to be careful because regardless of which spectrum you tend to live on in the Christian family, if you get loosened from the moorings of the Word of God, if you're not careful, then you'll craft an image of Jesus for yourself. And for many of you, your temptation is going to be to make Jesus look like a white liberal Protestant. And I've been around long enough to see it happen over and over again. You know, there was a quest for the historical Jesus. When I was in seminary, that was very much alive. I'm not sure if it's alive today or not. I'll have to admit I don't spend a whole lot of time in the halls of uh, the academy, not as much as I would like to. But many years ago, George Tyrell wrote these words as he responded to what Harnack and others had seen. He said, the Christ that Harnack sees looking back through 19 centuries of Catholic darkness is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. See, if you're not careful, you will craft Jesus into an image that makes you feel comfortable. One that you can relate to and that you can be proud of. And if you loosen your moorings from the scripture, depending on your perspective, you'll end up with that Jesus. Regardless of whether you're on the right or the left. And what I would encourage you to remind yourself of is this truth. If you have crafted Jesus according to your image, then he is no longer the Jesus of Holy Scripture. You see, God knows what we need. He knows what his people need. He, he inspired Paul to write it down. God's people need him. They need his son. They need each other. And they need the word of God faithfully proclaimed. And they need the word of God faithfully personified in the lives of the ministers of the church. And so in the end, it's my hope and my prayer that I will not wind up with a Jesus who looks like me. It's my prayer and my hope and the desire of my life that I'm going to faithfully walk with Jesus, that I'm going to study, that I'm going to walk humbly, that I'm going to listen to instruction. I'm going to heed discipline and admonition. And it's my hope and my prayer that at some point in my life, and it's my hope and my prayer for you, that when we get to the end, that actually we look more like him. May it be so. Mm-mm. <clears throat>